Thank you, and once again, good morning to students and teachers of the Word of God. We are continuing our studies in theology, studying, first of all, in these first uh, few weeks of broadcast, uh, theology proper, the study of God, God himself, in particular the Godhead, and beginning with lessons about God the Father, continuing with lessons about God the Son, called Christology, and then lessons about the Holy Spirit, called Pneumatology. Theology proper deals with the study of God the Father, and in these first 12 broadcasts we are studying the existence of God, the person of God, God as a balanced being, God as a trinity, the names of God, the fatherhood of God, the silence of God, and the famous expression, the fear of the Lord, which is found many times in the Word of God, and of which the modern liberals are scared to death. Nothing scares a liberal more than the expression, the fear of the Lord. And the expression has been toned down to godly reverence in the Schofield notes so as not to upset too many of the fundamentalists. There's a lot going on these days you wouldn't learn from uh, reading the newspaper and watching the television. And, of course, the Bible is always a perennial book, an up-to-date book, a new book. The King James Authorized Version is always 300 to 1,000 years ahead of anybody, anytime, anywhere, so we never have to worry about making apologies for it. We simply have to present the material and watch the skeptic's hair stand on end. Now, our lesson today deals with what we call the communicable attributes of God. By the communicable attributes of God, we mean those particular qualities in God that he can convey to a man and a, that a man can understand. There is no way on earth the finite mind can grasp God's immensity or eternity or immutability uh, try as we can, we cannot imagine a being who has always lived and always will live and always will be there. This is the educated man's uh, alibi sometime for rejecting God on the ground that since he, the finite brain that wouldn't fill a good-sized garbage can, cannot grasp or understand the essence of God, therefore God doesn't exist. It's kind of like a two-year-old who can't explain the rattles in a rattlesnake trying to pretend that rattlesnakes don't exist and goes out and plays in a rattlesnake den. Its stupidity, whether it's educated or uneducated, amounts to the same thing. All right, now here we talk about communicable attributes. When we say communicable, we mean God can communicate them. They can get across. We hear an awful lot today about sharing and communicating. We hear an awful lot about it from people who do not communicate with God, and God does not communicate with them. Uh, very unfortunate, but that's sometimes how it goes. Now, these are things that God has communicated to man that a man can grasp. The first of these is this. We can understand that God is holy. We can understand that. We can understand that if only by analogy. We can understand that we're sinful and we're not in the least like God. We can understand it by studying God's dealing with nations and people. We can understand it by studying God's dealing with sin. We do not have to have a Bible necessarily, although it's helpful to understand God's attitude about holiness. Now the Bible says, Be ye holy, for I am holy. 1 Peter chapter 1, 16. And we read the Lord God, whose name is holy, is a jealous God. Notice in particular Exodus 15, verse 11, and Isaiah 6, verse 3. Isaiah 6, verse 3, and Exodus 15, verse 11. However, you wouldn't have to have these passages to know that God is no respecter of person and that God deals with sin. As a man said one time, 
War is God's judgment on sin here, and hell is God's judgment on sin hereafter. And by this we simply mean this. We simply mean if a man has his eyes open and spend much time in hospitals, jails, insane asylums, and divorce courts, he will come to the conclusion that God does not put up with sin. Now, of course, again, if he's educated, this will help blind him a little bit. If he had enough education, so he thinks everything is relative and the factors are complex and you can't always say exactly what the case will be, then, of course, he can find a way to get out of it and say it isn't God judgment on sin, it's just accident or misfortune or tragic occurrence or spin the wheel, place your best, ladies and gentlemen, around and round she goes, and where she stopped, nobody knows. But, of course, again, this is the work of the uneducated, unlettered, crude pagan. And it's not very commendable for a man who professes to be able to read and write. Anybody who can read and write, distinguish a B from a C and a D from E, can distinguish adultery from fornication, and uh, can understand that the word for premarital sex is spelt the wrong way by those who tell it like it ain't. Anybody who can distinguish a Z from an S or an S from T can surely see the difference between right and wrong morally, if they're honest themselves. God is holy. All right, God's next communicable attribute, his moral attribute, is his righteousness. God is righteous. Please read Psalm 116, verse 5. Psalm 116, verse 5. And Ezra 9, 15. Ezra 9, 15. In the New Testament, the righteousness of God is the great doctrinal dissertation of the writer of the book of Romans. And among many pastors dealing with God's righteousness in Romans, we find the great passage which says in Romans chapter 10, they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God, for Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone that believeth. The righteousness of God is the great theme of the book of Romans. Chapter 9, verse 14, is there unrighteousness with God? Uh, notice chapter 8, verse 10, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Righteousness. This is the great theme of the book of Romans. Romans chapter 6, verse 18, you became the servants of righteousness. 619, your members servants to righteousness. 620, you were free from righteousness. Notice this thing over and over again. Chapter 6, verse 11, as instruments of righteousness unto God. Notice how it keeps cropping up and cropping up and cropping up throughout the book of Romans. Chapter 5, verse 21, that grace might reign through righteousness unto eternal life. Romans 5, verse 7, for scarcely for a righteous man one will die. Over and over and over and over. Notice in chapter 3 how this thing keeps coming out. Verse 26, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness. Chapter 3, verse 21, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifest. Now this is what the unsaved man doesn't want, the righteousness of God. What a man wants is his own righteousness. And reading the Bible, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Even after a man is, saint, is a saint, a saved sinner, the Holy Spirit has to help him produce what we call fine linen, which the Bible says is the righteousness of saints. God is righteous. Jeremiah 12, 1. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? 
And for some of you people say, well, I just took that for granted. Don't forget, in God's dealing with us, we often consider him to be unrighteous, at least in our attitude or response toward his providential dealings. It is one thing for a man like me to sit in front of this microphone with my bills paid and good health and food in my stomach and clothes on my back and say God is right and makes no mistakes. It's another thing for me to be in a wheelchair or have a little girl on a kidney machine having spent $13,000 in doctor bills and then praise God and thank him for doing right. Isn't it? Again, education is a great hindrance along these lines. Any education that fails to point out that man is wrong and God is right is not an education. You can learn more like Jonah did going to Whale College and graduating with a curriculum in, uh, in uh, Whale than you can in ten universities in this world if they don't teach you that God is right and man is wrong. God is righteous. Read Psalm 145, verse 17. This is the great theme of the book of Job. Why do the righteous suffer? Wasn't God doing unjustly in dealing with Job the way he did? Didn't God treat uh, Job wrong in view of the fact that Job was a just and righteous man and feared God? Yea, let God be true and every man a liar. God is merciful. We know this about God. This is a communicable attribute. God can communicate his mercy to man. Notice, please, Psalm 103, verse 8. Psalm 103, verse 8. There is anybody talking to my voice that hasn't experienced the mercy of God. Now, whether you recognize this or not, or acknowledge it or not, is beside the point. The point is, it has been dispensed to you. There has been some time in your life when you said, God be merciful to me, or God help me, or God have mercy upon me, or God get me out of this, or God help me, and God helped you, and God got you out. Now, the fact that you may have reciprocated by rejecting your son is your personal matter, not mine. And the fact you may have reciprocated by studying geology for 50 years to disprove Genesis 1 is your funeral, not mine. But God is merciful. His tender mercies over all, over all his works. The Bible tells us in Psalm 103, verse 8, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and plenteous in mercy. Again, Psalm 86, verse 15. And turn to it and read it, please. Psalm 86, verse 15 reveals this great truth about God. But thou, O Lord, art a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and plenteous in mercy and truth. One of the great attributes of God is his long-suffering. Mention Numbers 14, verse 18. Mentioned again in Exodus chapter 34. His putting up with sinners. His mercifulness to bad, wicked men. He causes his rain to fall upon the just and the unjust alike, Jesus Christ says telling us that often the mercy of God is mistaken for salvation. There's been many a man that thought because God got him out of a car wreck or got him out of a hospital, that meant that God had accepted him spiritually and the sense of redemption and salvation. Of course, this is not true. God accepted the prayers of Nehemiah as a memorial and accepted his good works as a memorial before God, but the man was still unsaved. And you should read Acts chapter 10 to learn that where God is often merciful and compassionate, putting up with man with government and allowing certain things to happen, his mercy doesn't last forever, and at death, you either die under his mercy or you die under his wrath. And his wrath is there, and you can know it, and you can feel it. The Bible says in John 3.36, the Bible says, He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Again, Romans 9.22 
What if God willing to show his wrath and make his power known, endured with much long suffering, the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy? So when we speak of God's mercy, we must never forget to speak of his wrath. God is a complete being and a balanced being. He's not just all love, peace, hug, and kiss you and let you get away with hell and earth. The Lord's not going to do it. Hebrews 12, 29 says, Our God is a consuming fire. Nahum chapter 1, verse 2 says, The Lord God is a jealous God. Now it is hard for the unsaved man to figure this out. As a matter of fact, the natural man receiveth not the thing of the Spirit of God. Uh, they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, for they are spiritually discerned. It is impossible for an unsaved man to figure out how God, if he is God and perfect, could be jealous. But this, of course, again, is stupidity on the part of the blinded sinner in failing to realize that every attribute in man is magnified a thousand times in God. After all, if the Bible is correct, and we say it with no doubt in our own mind, God made man his own image. And if this is true, then the attributes which can be found in man will be found also in man's creator. However, magnified a million times where it would be impossible you to imagine the intensity. No man listening to my voice could imagine the agony that Jesus Christ felt when he knelt in the Garden of Gethsemane and contemplated becoming sin and turning into sin for sinful man and becoming a curse under the Father's wrath. After he himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, had never had an impure thought one time in his life. The attributes of God are magnified hundreds of thousands of times. And jealousy, although it can turn to bad things and wicked things, wrath is uh, cruel and envy is out, uh, and anger is outrageous, but who can stand before envy? Although jealousy and envy are two of the worst emotions ever felt by man and can cause untold damage, they are still part of a genuine nature which, if used properly, is correct and holy. Now, let me explain myself. It was jealousy that caused Satan to covet the throne of God. Isaiah 14, verse 10 to 14. It was jealousy that caused Cain to knock Abel's brains out and made him a murderer. It was jealousy that caused Joseph's brethren to sell him as a slave in Egypt. It was jealousy that caused the brethren to rebel under Moses when God had chosen him as their leader. Numbers chapter 15. It was jealousy that caused Saul to try to kill David because he knew God was with him. And we are told that Herod knew that for envy the chief priests had delivered Jesus Christ to him to be crucified, or rather Pilate. Then the motive behind the crucifixion was jealousy. They were jealous of Christ's authority and his power and his knowledge of the word. They were jealous of his audience, the people listened to him. They were jealous of his ability to get permanent, lasting results. So jealousy per se not connected with anything is neutral, but jealousy turned the wrong way is one of the most destructive, godless forces in the face of this earth. Do you know why China, Africa, and Europe would like to see America become an international socialist country? Because they're jealous of our welfare and our money and our power and our industry and our standard of living, which we did not get through a capitalistic system. We got it through honoring God and the Word of God. And when we cease to honor God and the Word of God, we'll be just like any other pagan nation the face of this earth, scrubbing around for a living. But jealousy is a genuine motive. It was given, for example, to guard things that are right. When Paul says he's jealous over you, he said, I'm jealous with a godly jealousy. 
When the Bible says the spirit that is in it lusteth to envy in the book of James, it means the Holy Spirit is concerned about his private property, which belongs to him. It is jealousy in part that keeps families together. And when a man doesn't care who messes around with his wife, and a woman doesn't care who messes around with her husband, you got a home that's no more a home than a garbage disposal dump. People say, do you have to talk that plain? You do for this generation. They're tough as a rhinoceros is hide. Folks said, do you have to be so blunt when you talk? I should probably be blunter, but the FCC forbids it. After all, I'm dealing with a nation of adulterers, cutthroats, murderers, and thieves. And that's probably as well as you can put it for a lot of folks. I'm dealing with a congregation of people who people have seen people stabbed and shot and poisoned and murdered in their living room eight and ten times a week and sometimes five times a night. Now, you have to face the facts. God is jealous. God will not tolerate his children messing with the world. God loves his children and wants them for his own. Any parent who is not jealous over the safeguard and the welfare and security of its child is not a normal parent. Any parent who is a normal parent and has what the Bible calls natural affection resents the world trying to train the child its way instead of the parent's way and resents ungodly, carnal, filthy, wicked, perverted people trying to put up their morals as the correct standard of morals for their child instead of the standard of morals the parents desire to be taught in the home. God is merciful, but God is a consuming fire, his wrath, and God is a jealous God. Read Joshua 24, verse 19. God is love. Now, you don't have to tell the average American that, because the average American has been so soaked with this God of love, he thinks God is nothing, to quote Joseph Parker, but, quote, a great big kiss, unquote. The average American has had such a milksop God of love for a God that he can read John 3.16 without shedding a tear. If there's one thing America doesn't need anymore, it doesn't need a God of love. That's the last thing that a God of heaven it needs is a God of love. This country has been brainwashed and soft soap with this pink tea lemonade business for so long you have born-again saved people who don't think that God would even kill a sinner. He kills them every day. It's true the Lord has no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, and the Lord is long-suffering not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the same God that said that said, I am the Lord God, I wet my glittering sword, and I raise it to heaven, I kill, I wound, I make alive, I give life, and I give death. The same God said, Vengeance is mine, a fire is consumed that will burn the lowest hell, a fire is consumed in mine anger and shall consume the sinners. The same God that said, Suffer the children to me, said, uh, You serpent, you generation of vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell? The same God that said, Blessed the pure in heart, said, Year of your father the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. So we talk about God as love. We don't have to spend a great deal of time upon it. Every American has had that stuff soaked in him where he thinks God wouldn't lift a finger if he lived like the devil. Lord will kill you, man. Romans 8, 13 says, They that live after the flesh shall die, written to a Christian. First John 5, 17, There is a sin unto death for a Christian. You unsaved people, he that being often reproved shall suddenly be cut off from that without remedy. Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. Don't give us this song and dance. 
Don't give us this jazz about God is love, crying in the chapel. He'll beat you with odds wide open. He'll pardon you. He won't pardon you apart from blood atonement, sonny. Your blood's no good. It's going to rot in the ground. Your flesh is no good. It'll decompose ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Your righteousness isn't going to get you anywhere but to a hole in the ground. All right, God is love, 1 John 4, 8, but love is not God. 1 John 3.16 tells us God is love, as does John 3.16. God so loved the world he gave, past tense, his only begotten Son. Here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us, past tense, and gave his only begotten Son. All the love God ever had to show of this world is manifest at Calvary. So we read, it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy, Romans 9.16. God has chosen to show mercy to the undegenerate world at Calvary. And if you want God's love and God's mercy, you go to Calvary, and there you'll find God's wrath and God's blood in the same place. As a matter of fact, it's called God's blood in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, and we'll study this more when we study Christology and Amariology. At present, we're speaking about the communicable attributes of God, one of which is love. This love and mercy is showed in the same place where God's wrath against sin is manifest and God's jealousy for righteousness is manifest, at a bleeding, bloody, wooden, nail-pierced, whip-marked, blood-stained cross. And apart from that, you can daydream about the love of God as long as you like, but you'll only be a self-deceived fool in the end, and will have disobeyed the commandment, let no man deceive you, and let no man deceive himself. And again it is written, Be not deceived. If you think the love of God in this age can be obtained without meeting God's requirement, you are deceived by Satan. It is not of him that willeth. You can't decide how God's going to have mercy on you, nor of him that runneth. You can't work your way into it. It is of God that shows mercy, and God has showed you the place where he'll have mercy upon you. And until you come to that place, the sword of God's wrath has its point against you, and God will not put away that sword unless you come to the place where he put it away in the helpless bleeding back of the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And if that sounds new to you, it only goes to show you've been a pagan for a long time, and it's about time you got the wax out of your ears. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Now, with the crowd you've been hanging out with, the library you've been reading, it's no wonder you don't know anything. All right, God is love. That is no God is faithful. Read Deuteronomy 7, 9 in particular concerning God's faithfulness. And Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. Then we have a great promise for the Christian in the New Testament in regards to God's faithfulness. What we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. That God will confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called in the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. We may not be faithful, but thank God, God is faithful, and he will confirm us unto the end. Notice in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, we read, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. We can know about God's faithfulness. We can experiment with it. We can learn about God's faithfulness. We can claim His promises. We can put Him to the test. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, we read these words. If we believe not, 
yet he abideth faithful. He cannot deny himself. Now look at that tremendous promise. That promise says if a man believes in Jesus Christ and gets saved and is born again, and then later the agnostics and the skeptics continually talk to him until they talk him out of it, it doesn't make any difference if we believe not, yet he abides faithful. He cannot deny himself. Now listen. If you were ever saved, you're still saved. If you were ever born again, God cannot deny you at the judgment seat of Christ. There is no way on earth Christ can point his finger at a born-again child of God and say, Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. I never knew you. When he knew you. There is no way that God can take a member of the body of Christ, whom the Holy Spirit has put into Christ, and say, Get out of the body of Christ, for he cannot deny himself. Second Timothy 2, verse 13. This is God's faithfulness, or as the song says, Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father, there is no shadow of turning with thee. The Lord is faithful, who hath promised. God is faithful. We can learn this from the Word of God. We can learn it by putting him to the test. What could be more ridiculous than an educated skeptic talking about you can't know whether there's any God or not when he can find out in 15 seconds? Ain't that a flip? Some educated... Uh, Ding Bat came to a founder of a Christian school and said, I've been studying at your school for a year, and nobody yet can prove the existence of God to me. And the founder of the school said, Young man, you can leave this room, and I'll give you 15 minutes to find God. And if you don't know God personally in 15 minutes, you're shipped. Any fool can find God in 15 minutes. And the more education you have, the more trouble you're going to have doing it. We'll make it 15 minutes the limit for you. A man with no education can run it down to five minutes. And if you know the plan of salvation, we can run it down to 15 seconds. The very idea, some of you lame brains talking about being educated and not knowing God. Come on, boy. That book says if any man is willing to do God's will, he'll know the doctrine. God is faithful. The thing is you haven't put into the test. All right, God's communicable attributes include his faithfulness, his long-suffering. God is compassionate, 1 Kings 8, 23. God is good, Psalm 25, 8. God is true, Jeremiah 10, 10. God is incorruptible, Romans 1, 23. God is gracious, Psalm 116, verse 5. God is invisible, 1 Timothy 1, 17. God is upright, Psalm 25, verse 8. God is perfect, Matthew 5, 48. And to wind it up and put the capstone on, there's none like him, Exodus 9, 14. There's nobody like him, Deuteronomy 33, verse 26. In view of the fact that our God is a great God, a King of kings and Lord of lords, who has a name that is above every name, in view of the fact that our God is God of gods, very God, the Creator, the Redeemer, the Savior, we should love him, we should worship him, we should fear him, we should serve him, and we should obey him. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. On next week's broadcast, we'll take up the fifth in our series of studies, which will deal with God as a balanced being, going into a detailed discussion of God's communicable attributes, his holiness, his love, his mercifulness, and his faithfulness. Until the same time next week, then, may the Lord bless you, and good day.